Hello, and this is Fiona Cuthbertson coming from the pod to record Off the Cuth. Today we're joined by Steve McCabe, MP. Steve was elected as the Labour MP for Birmingham Hall Green at the 1997 election when he unseated the Conservative member Andrew Hargreaves by 8,420 votes in the Labour landslide, the first time a Labour MP had held the seat. In October 2006, the boundaries of Birmingham Hall Green changed and Steve stood for selection for the Birmingham Selly Oak seat, which he then went on to win in 2010. He's held the seat since. Steve's service to his community started many years before he went into Parliament, having trained as a social worker and worked with young offenders to get them back on track. As a Member of Parliament, he spent time in the Whip's office as well as in the Home Office and Education Departments. He's also spent time on the Home Office Select Committee, arguing for more police presence on the streets, a call he's continued to make as Chair of the APPG on Retail Crime, Safe and Sustainable High Streets, where collaboration between retailers and police is key in the fight against crime. Welcome, Steve, to the show. Hi, Fiona. Nice to see you. Thank you very much. So, firstly... Can you tell us a little bit about your political journey and what led you to become a Member of Parliament? Well, I mean, I grew up in the west coast of Scotland on the Lower Clyde, which actually, unlike lots of parts of England, is quite a political sort of environment. So it was quite common when I was a youngster growing up for people at home to discuss politics. None of my family were actively involved in politics, but it was quite common to hear political discussion. So I guess I kind of grew up with a bit of a a sense of that. And I suppose the main thing that kind of drew me into party politics and eventually standing for the Commons was that, as you said, I I trained as a social worker and I kind of believe in the power of social work to help people change and improve their lives. I think it is possible to recognise some of our feelings and bad habits and do things to alter them. But I think if every day of the week you're coming across people with predominantly the same types of problems, the odds are that's not about individual change. It's about policy positions that the government are adopting and over a period of time I guess I just became more and more drawn to the policy things that I thought needed to change. So as you say your previous career has set you up because it has given you the grounding what else do you think has been important in preparing you for the Commons? You know, I'm not sure if anything ever prepares anyone for the Commons. <laughs> At least it certainly wasn't my experience. I think it is a pretty massive learning curve. But cause the things that I've kind of relied on over the years are not to get too obsessed with the Commons. I like it. It's a great place. But it is a village. And what happens here isn't really the rest of the country and I think it's kind of important to stay grounded with friends and people in the local community. What they're saying matters and is important and it's often a bit different from the gossip that's running all over the commons. Absolutely you say that it's important to remain close to your roots and as I mentioned in my introduction when you won Birmingham Hall Green it was the first time a Labour candidate had won that seat. It must have made you very proud and felt that you'd really become part of that community. Well, it did. I mean, I think uh, it's kind of unusual when uh, someone with an accent like mine is described as the local guy. So it, it probably did have that impact. I mean, I think I have to be honest and say that was about the Blair effect and the Labour swing in '97. Much as my ego would love to think differently, I don't think I should take too much personal 
credit for it. But it was a, you know, it was a great achievement. We'd never won the seat before. I was pleased. And my mum was extremely proud. I'm not surprised. And you have both been in the governing party, having come into Parliament on, as you say, the crest of the wave in 1997, as well as opposition since 2010. So what's been the most unexpected feature of each of those political situations? If I'm really honest, I think when I arrived here in 97, it was pretty overwhelming. But as I reflect on it, it was overwhelming for me as a new MP, but I think it was a bit overwhelming for everyone. I think the 180-seat majority took Tony Blair and New Labour by surprise as well. And of course, we were up against a extremely despondent, smashed opposition Tory party, if you like, so it was slightly unreal. There was a kind of sense that we could do anything, everything was possible, and people were probably all caught up in the euphoria of that. As time went on, the problems of government, the problems of being a governing party, the difficult decisions you have to take, the way you can never please everybody set in. And it got tougher, but for me, that was probably the most valuable learning of that entire experience. Opposition is very different because, you know, however much people like to complain when they're in government, at least when you're in government, you're making real decisions and you can influence the outcomes. Opposition is much tougher. If you're someone who believes in the, the sort of political system we have in this country, then you want to be in power. You don't want to be in opposition. Uh, there are some people who I sometimes think enjoy opposition because in a way it's easier. You know, you don't have the same pressures or decision making. But I think it's quite frustrating. I suppose the two things I've learned from it are, one, if you want to do anything in opposition, particularly as a backbench MP, you have to find out what MPs on the governing side are going to share your views and you might be able to work with. That's a pretty crucial first step. And the other is to try and do different things, reinvent yourself periodically. Otherwise, I think you become very stale and very disenchanted. Yes, you mentioned working cross-party as an important thing. So it is key to getting change. So what would you say is the best example of this hassling in practice whilst you've been in Parliament? Well, I mean, I think the best example are always in the all-party groups. Myself, that's to some extent in select committees. I I would say those are the best examples. Clearly, there was a lot of cross-party working went on during the immediate post-Brexit period, the, the Theresa May premiership. But I'm not sure it was always that constructive. I mean, I think it was people who were working cross-party, but they were working really towards either furthering Brexit or trying to stifle Brexit. And I think, I'm not sure it was a terribly constructive period. I've been involved in working cross-party with a group on heart valve disease, where we've been able to improve the pathway, the the diagnosis for heart valve disease. I think that's a, a pretty good example. You often see... MPs with private members' bills who actually worked with people from other parties to get their bills through. In fact, I think we saw one in the the last term, Time Off for Carers, which was a very good example of something that had broad cross-party support and various other 
MPs are trying to bring it to fruition. So I think that's the kind of thing that's most useful. It is true that obviously people do bring their own passions to Parliament. So if you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? <laughs> oh, gosh, I don't know. I don't think I'm, I'm quite caught by the legacy fund. Is it? But I would really like people to honestly say, well, at least he was pretty straight. And when he disagreed with me, he was upfront about it. And when he said he would do something, he did it. Often the perception of politicians is not very fair. And sometimes the media doesn't help that. Sometimes we don't help ourselves. My kind of experience of people is that most people are fairly straight and do the best they can. And that's the sort of politician I'd like to be remembered as. And unfortunately, as in any kind of organisation or structure, there are some people who give it a bit of a bad name and they get a disproportionate amount of attention. Absolutely. Well, we're going to come to the 24-hour news cycle later on, but obviously we're lucky enough to work together on the issue of retail crime as you're the chair of the APPG on Retail Crime Safe and Sustainable High Streets. And last Wednesday, we got the Prime Minister's reassurance that he expects a thorough and zero-tolerance response from the police on this issue. But a recent report by the British Independent Retail Association showed that 82% of retailers don't even bother reporting physical attacks on shopkeepers. What needs to be done to change this? Well, I think the simple answer is we need much more publicity and attention about the effects of retail crime, both on the the people who work in shops uh, and the people who are trying to use them. And we need much more visible evidence that the what the government says it, it's going to do is actually producing results. To be fair, I had a very interesting chat with the, the policing minister just yesterday, actually, and I, I think he is genuinely committed, and my instinct is to work with him and see if we can make some progress. Again, coming back to this collaboration, well, of course, you co-chaired a reception on the very same day with Ian Paisley, which does show that it does have cross-party support. Many parliamentarians turned up to pledge their support for all retailers. So what message do you hope that the retailers walked away with that day? Well, I hope they, they felt that these politicians are treating it seriously, that it's not a party issue, it's a cross-party issue and that we are all committed to trying to do something real and substantial to improve the situation. Absolutely, especially considering retailers need to sell an additional 12 items to make up for each item that's stolen. So that doesn't just impact a business regarding that one thing, does it? It does impact the retail business as a whole, especially considering the burdens on business at the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that is the the thing that comes across, it came up during the event you were talking about, that there is a kind of tendency to to see retail crime as if it almost of the past, shoplifting, it's a kind of low-level type of offence, maybe the sort of thing that young people engage in at a certain age or, you know, excusable because of a person's circumstances. All the evidence these days is that's just not true. That's a a complete misconception. The reality is it's often organised crime. People are stealing to order for crime bosses. It has a devastating effect on shop workers who are assaulted. 
that can have an effect on the family it can for small independent traders maybe those who live above the shop it can have a, a, an absolutely devastating impact and of course the cost is both added to the insurance it's added to the the problems of replacing stock but ultimately the cost is imposed on the customer because things get more expensive as a result so i mean it's having a a debilitating impact on our economy at the very time when the government would like to see a bit of growth in the economy. Yes, and obviously you see just how the cost of living crisis has affected people in your constituency. So what are you finding is taking up most time in your Birmingham Selly Oak constituency at the moment? What are people coming to you about? I think for a lot of people, We've talked for a long time about the cost of living crisis, but I suspect that for a lot of people, it's really beginning to work through now. And so I'm coming across people who are, again, struggling with energy bills. Sometimes it is the real cost that's the problem. Sometimes, this is particularly true of elderly people, it's the fear that's the, the problem. We are seeing, you know, I don't think my constituency is unique. We're seeing quite a growth in the use of food banks, surprisingly, often from people who are working at the same time. Food banks say they are struggling to cope with the demand. And I guess more than anything, there is a sense among too many people at the moment that it doesn't really matter what they do. Things are not going to improve for them. So, I mean, it's bad enough that the economic indicators and the, the reality about rising prices or, or wages that have fallen behind a bit, it, it's bad enough that is true, that's the reality. But I think the sense of desolation and the lack of hope creates a, a mood and an atmosphere which makes it really difficult to make progress. And there's a lot of noise now with 24-hour news, meaning that obviously some subjects are done to death, others are missed. So what do you feel needs to be in the public's radar that isn't at the moment? Well, the combination of social media and 24-hour news means that things get a, a, a kind of scattergun approach and it's, it's in your face uh, and then it's forgotten, or it's the views of a particular group and that prevails and you could be forgiven for thinking that was a majority view it might just be the view of a very vocal group I think the the things we should be worried about at the moment are young people unable to afford to rent young people unable to get on the housing market the pressures on young people of trying to put something away for a pension you know, there are lots of groups in society who are struggling. I, I, I'm very conscious of that. But there is a sense that for the first time, we're not going forward. And so, you know, it's not so easy for the coming generation. Now, if you're in the fortunate position that you do have parents who can help you out and support you, that's great. But we know that in a time when there are so many broken families, mixed families, reconstituted families. It, it's tougher for a lot of people. Youngsters leaving care obviously find that very difficult. But, you know, lots of, lots of young people who come from relatively stable, straightforward families, but just not rich families, are also having the, the, the same problem. So I, 
I mean, I think it's all about the impact on the the next generation, and we should devote a bit more attention to them. And you do mention also the fact that people get very excited about one particular mindset or viewpoint, and this is obviously often highlighted on Twitter or social media, and you have recently defended your right to block constituents who do be rude or abusive or unhelpful. Um, Does social media encourage people to get aggressive with those they disagree with more easily? Well, it's my view that it does. I'm always surprised when I come across people in person and I discover they're the same person I've seen some social media posts by. (laughs) There was one particular incident where I had a great deal of abuse for my role in chairing Labour Friends of Israel from a, a particular gentleman. He was, you know, well, I, I'm not sure I would describe his comments as anti-Semitic, but they were very close to the edge. They were certainly rude and abusive. And it turned out he was, when I finally had enough and said to the police, who is this person? Is he allowed to do this? It turned out he was like, a loving grandfather and the secretary of a cycling club. And the last guy on the planet you would expect to be sitting at a keyboard in the early hours bashing out <laughs> some of the most vile comments you could you could think of. Yes, it is amazing how social media can turn people into keyboard warriors. And just coming to the future, who do you think is going to win the next election? And do you think social media is going to impact on people's decisions and how they vote? As a Labour MP, I think Labour is going to win it. <laughs> to be honest, I, I, I'm not sure the next election's a done deal yet. I, I hope Labour wins. I, I personally think the country is ready for a change. And I think, but I think Labour's job is still to convince people that he can bring about the changes they want. So I guess that would be my view. You know, we're, we're told almost at every election I can remember for about the last four or five that it's going to be the internet election. I don't know if that is necessarily true. I'm not entirely convinced that social media is quite as influential as people think, but I think there is some evidence that it's changing campaigning. I mean, place ads and things like that are different. And it was certainly evident in the last general election that the Conservative Party made much better use of digital campaigning than the Labour Party. So it's certainly a force to be reckoned with. And it's the autumn statement tomorrow. So what do you think the government needs to include to appeal to to its voters? In all the headlines suggest it's going to be some sort of tax cut. I'll be fascinated to see what it is because I'm not sure there is an affordable tax cut available that could appease voters at the moment. I I wonder if the problem with that is that that's an assumption about how people traditionally respond. So the the Tory party gives them a tax cut and they come back into the fold. I I think there's a, a, a much higher level of disillusionment among Tory voters at the present time. And I, even if it were feasible and financially possible to buy them off with a tax cut, I'm not sure it's going to be that effective. But I mean, I watch it with interest. The, the real argument is when you find the space for a tax cut, you appease one group, but there's an awful lot of other people who will say, what about me? So what do you think is going to be the most important issue that you think will inspire people to vote Labour at the next election? Well, I think Labour have got to persuade people that things can change. I think we've got to be absolutely upfront with them that it will take time. 
but I think we've got to be clear about the things that can change and they've got to be assured that Labour will have sufficient grip on the economy to make these things possible. It's a fundamental issue about winning people's trust, but I think it's very important that the Labour Party does that. And do you feel positive about the future? I think if we make the right choices, yes. I mean, I don't think there's any reason why the country has to go on a steady downward path. I think there's a lot lot of creativity in this country. There's a lot of bright people, a lot of innovation, a lot of potential new businesses, a lot of things to look forward to and grasp for. But it's about the choices we make. And finally, what gives you most hope for the next generation? I'm a Birmingham MP and Birmingham is genuinely a multicultural city. And I see a lot of the good things that come out of multiculturalism. We see a lot of fusion in things like music, dance, cookery. I think that there are lots of things can cause division. And obviously, given events in the Middle East at the moment, we're seeing some very divisive things happening in this country. But I think, by and large, we have a much better educated, a much better informed generation of young people coming through. And they're blessed with enormous talent. It's the job of people my age to make sure they get a chance to use that talent. Steve, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. It's been very interesting to hear about how important it is that MPs are grounded and that they make sure that they really do represent their constituents. Thank you to the listeners who've hopefully enjoyed the show as much as we've enjoyed making it. As always, if you have any questions regarding the podcast, feel free to comment. If you think it's worth coming back, please like and subscribe. And if you feel that you need something to tide you over to the next podcast, please buy my book, Party Games, which is on Amazon. And on that note, I'll see you next time. Hope you have a good week, one and all.